1: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest
2: way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many other platforms. It's really easy to use, you guys. You can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started today. He's a dude, you know what I'm
1: saying? Nicole and Jamal.
2: For the Warriors, what does a successful season look like?
1: Michael Porter, Aaron Gordon, Nicole Yopi, Chester starting front line.
2: I'd say that they have very expensive taste. You're listening to the Chicken Nuggets Podcast. Grilled. All right, welcome in everybody to this week's episode of the Chicken Nuggets Grilled Edition. I'm actually really excited about this week's episode because until this week we've pretty much been talking to people that you guys hear from on a regular basis but not always on my podcast and this week we have somebody totally different i don't think anybody from nuggets twitter nuggets media have been able to get an exclusive (laughs) with jake fisher jake used to write for sb nation sports illustrated bleacher report too (laughs)
3: I'm at Bleacher Report now. Yeah, I write one thing a week. Um, it's been it's been a good setup.
2: I mean, you've had a lot of awesome articles. I even saw one on MPJ. Yeah, what was the title of that one? I had it up earlier.
3: I don't remember, but I, I met up with him in Summer League 2019. It, it was great. He took me up to his hotel room to like show me his like diet that he was working on, and um, I don't know. I've always had a soft spot for the guy. He's a really nice kid. Like he's got a bit of a mixed reputation in terms of, you know, like intangibles and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. And I know he drove the Nuggets coaching staff pretty crazy in his early years and probably still is defensively. Um, but I think I've, I've always seen him as, like, a really nice, like, down-to-earth, just, like, driven kid who wants to hoop and, like, thinks he's really really damn good. Can we, cur- can we curse on this? I just want to – Yeah, you
2: can definitely um, curse.
3: <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just thinks he's really fucking good. And, like, at a certain point, that definitely – Brings like it bothers some people and people the wrong way, but like you need to have that mindset to be able to do what he's doing. I mean, he's scoring what he's scoring right now to the point where the Nuggets aren't missing Jamal Murray. Like he wouldn't be that good if he didn't think he was that good.
2: Yes, yes, um, he definitely knows he's good. He like I think the other day he was quoted after one of the games he said, "Oh, I made a decision to play in a role, but I'm used yeah. to be." focal point of an offense it's not like this is new for him uh he's still driving coaching staff crazy uh, not just on defense also with some of his um selfish offense offensive choices i guess you could say but michael malone is still able to put a team out there that's winning right now i know you're a sixers fan and i'm sorry that we're gonna start here but
3: I'm, I'm, I'm not a Sixers fan. I grew up a Sixers fan, but um, yeah, we're, the allegiances have been cut.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. I can't believe you're already walking back your Sixers take because I'm pretty sure this is what we argued about the first time we met was yeah. Sixers versus Nuggets. I really wanted to go in on Joel Embiid with you here.
3: Man, I mean, I, I, as much as I love Jokic, I definitely think Embiid is a better all-around player for sure. But is he the
2: MVP, Jake?
3: No, it's Jokic for sure. A week ago, up up until the Murray injury, I really did have it as Embiid. But what 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 they've done since Murray's gotten hurt is, I mean, it's unfortunate. Like it's not like a good thing for Denver, obviously, or a good thing for Jokic. But I think it really swung the tide. And there's no way I think you can make. I mean, you can make the argument for Embiid. You can make the argument for a bunch of people, but I th- I think it's Jokic right now. Yeah,
2: I'm surprised that that's what it took for you to swing Jokic's way because. Over here in Denver, the big talk was, well, Embiid's missed a bunch of games. How can you even consider him to be the most valuable player when Jokic is playing a game every single game? And then you will heard on the Sixers side, well, look at the Sixers without Embiid, how bad yeah. they are. Now you see how good the Nuggets continue to be even without Jamal Green, and that's kind of what swung it for you, huh?
3: It's a great point. I think the difference is, one, the Eastern Conference. Like a lot of the Sixers games, I mean – both, both Philly and Brooklyn look like juggernauts with their um, win victories compared to other teams in that conference. But like, look at the other teams in that conference. Right. Um, so a lot of those wins don't come. Which is maybe this is a backward argument, but it really is. It really is something I factor into thinking about the games you missed. And also, I think that um, it, it's it's this is expanding the argument. I do think Philly's roster um, is built like around another like they can they can put out these lineups that's built around Ben or built around Embiid and like I think that has been a tug and pull in that organization for a while that they've had to be able to figure out and find that balance but it's also benefited them to the point where when one of those guys gets hurt like you know you have your style of play around an all NBA all-star type player so it's not like it didn't surprise me that they played well without Embiid like we have never really seen Denver with Jokic without Murray for a long stretch like that you know so that's also kind of the context. And I just think Embiid is so breathtaking defensively. Some plays he makes, like, at that size, that um, he's always just blown me wet. Like, I remember the first time when I was in Boston um, for a lot of years in school, I went to a lot of Celtics games for Slam Magazine. That's where I started out. Um, I remember the first time I walked into an arena and there was this huge dude on the other free throw line. I was like, who is that guy? And it was Embiid, like, I hadn't – because he was hurt that year. Like, I I didn't go to the arena thinking I would see him on the floor. And just the way he moves at that size with those instincts defensively and the way he protects the rim, like, you can see guys cower away from him and his rotations and how he can switch out onto a guard and keep that guy pinned in the corner. Like, it's really damn impressive. So, I just can't shake that, like, when I think about MVP and comparing those two guys. Like, at the end of the day – I think Embiid is is the better player. Like, I just do. But Jokic, I would agree, is the MVP for sure. And honestly, I don't really care either. Like, they're both amazing. I would take either of them in a heartbeat. They're the best two centers in the league. I don't think that's even close. So, like, if, if you want to argue with me that Jokic is better, great. I'll say, cool, your points, your points make sense too.
2: <laughs> so, I don't necessarily want to argue about it. But I will say, you know, when Embiid's not on the floor, it's supposedly – Ben Simmons is the Defensive Player of the Year, so it's kind of interesting <laughs> that you would say, "Okay, Embiid is so, such great, such a great defender, and and everything." He, I mean, I agree with you. He, the only other person I've seen kind of have the same reaction, or players have the same reaction to that defender is is Zion really, and more that's on offense. Like Paul Millsap straight up moved out of the way when Zion came through the lane last week. Yeah. So, um, but. But, yeah, I mean, you have another defensive player of the year there. We're not talking about the Nuggets missing Jokic and how good the Nuggets are when, they, when Jokic isn't on the floor because that doesn't happen. That wouldn't happen. Yeah. And that's, yeah. I think, a big difference or at least a good point in Jokic's favor, which probably is my obligation here to do that today. <laughs> but but um, the Sixers and your kind of tie into your book a lot. So tell us about how you got into it and why, what made you want to write a, a yeah. book about tanking in the NBA?
3: Well, as we've discussed, you know, I am from Philly. I'm wearing an Eagles hat right now, um, but uh, and I grew up a diehard Sixers fan for sure. Um, and so naturally, like, as I got started in the business, that was the team I started covering, just like how you're covering Denver right now. You know, um, it's 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 like the most obvious launching pad for most people. Unfortunately, when I was in school and starting out as a freshman and that type of stuff in high school, that's when like the internet and the blog game was really becoming big, and there were a ton of opportunities to write for free, which a whole other situation but it was good for me at the time I don't rec. I hope that everyone would get paid for their work but that's just what the situation was and um and ending that spiel now um so I was covering the Sixers for Liberty Ballers as Sam Hanke was doing his process I was living in Boston like you mentioned and people forget that the Celtics traded KG and Paul Pierce to Brooklyn, the big famous quote-unquote Nets trade, the same night that Sam Hanky traded Drew Holiday in the New noel trade. So those rebuilds started pretty much in lockstep. When I was going to those games, I mean, every game, I was going to every Celtics game, but when the Philly would come to town or, you know, Orlando, because they had just traded Dwight Howard or like, other poor teams, it just, the moment was like, oh, my God. It felt like the losing Super Bowl, like, who's going to lose this game and get a better lottery chance at getting the next guy. Like at that time, a 2014 draft, Andrew Wiggins, uh, Joel Embiid, Jabari Parker were considered to be the next generation of the 2003 draft, LeBron, D Wade, Melo, Bosch. Like obviously Embiid, like we're just talking about became that guy Wiggins and Parker, not so much, but that class was also like deep, like Marcus Smart, you know, isn't an all-star In this league, but he's been the sixth man in Boston for, you know, almost a decade now. We're Mm -hmm. seeing Aaron Gordon get traded to Denver and become, you know, a really critical piece in a title race. Uh, Julius Randle went seven that year. Now he's, you know, an MVP candidate in his own right. So that wasn't really deep draft. It just wasn't like the 2003 type hype. You know, it had, but that's what teams were really. Teams looked at Miami and saw those 2003 guys all together running the league and said, We can't compete with them anyway. We might as well tank, get these guys. And by the time they're in their prime, LeBron, his group will be out of their prime. Jokes on everyone else like LeBron is still LeBron. Um, but you know, that was the plan. So, um, it was the way I got my start in my career, and you know. I, I felt like I got better as a reporter and as, um, you know, an NBA type per- Like, I learned the NBA through those conversations. And whenever I would wear this Eagles hat to shoot around or something, like, people would say, like, oh, you're from Philly? Like, are you a Sixers fan? Process, yada, yada, yada. That there are a few things in life that are truly polarizing. And and, and tanking, I think, is very, is that. Like, you either think it's great or and you're all for it because you understand the – like the benefits to it and and the rules that make that an appealing path, or you think it's an abomination and it should be, you know, crucified and punished and all this type of crap. So that's the genesis of it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, I know you're a reporter. And so you probably don't take either side. You're probably telling us the middle, you know, everything on both sides of it, but it is a really polarizing issue. I think when I first started covering, I would have never been okay with, well, when you think of it, like, as a fan even, right? When you think of the NBA as a fan, I think a lot of fans aren't okay with knowing that their team is tanking.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, but now you have the Sixers who, last time I checked, are, are they still first in the East over there?
3: If they're not, they're a half game back, yeah. They're, 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 I think they're probably going to end up taking it.
2: Right. So, so then you have teams that end up being able to go through – a process and get to a place where they can actually compete. The Denver Nuggets on the other hand are really not that team as far as I know, but you got some inside scoops throughout this whole conversation and everything or writing this whole book and all the different conversations yeah. you had with coaches and players and everything. But it seems like the Denver Nuggets really, really, really want to do it quote unquote the right way or by drafting yes. and developing players. What's your take on the Nuggets old school path to victory?
3: Yeah. Listen, the Nuggets, they—they, they, you're right. They didn't tank. They didn't, you know, punt the whole season. But that that 14-15 draft, they did. They did get into the lottery for no. It was 2014. For, no, yeah, 2015 for Emmanuel Mudiay. Sorry, they did kind of trade some pieces away. Um, they moved Javale McGee's salary. And um, I think they traded Andre Miller that year too to Washington. I could be I could be mixing up the years, but the year they got Moody at, at seven, there was a bit of an effort in in the end of the year, um, which is you know why this playing tournament has partially been created that we're seeing right now all the strong that everyone's talking about. You know, teams like Denver that year might have instead competed for the ten seed rather than try to get down into the lottery to where you get a guy like Emmanuel Moody. And I remember you know, talking to Tim Connolly. And a couple other Nuggets people like they did not think they were going to forget him. They, they they he didn't even work out with the Nuggets. People forget that. Obviously he's not like I don't know. If people forget that. Maybe people didn't know that. Um, but uh, yeah, Moody didn't become you know the greatest player of all time. He's not even Nuggets. He's not even he's not a he's not a, cor- he's not a player. Little alone a cornerstone, but. You know, he was someone at the time who was considered potentially the best point guard in that draft. Like, the Sixers were considering him or D'Angelo Russell as that number one guard. Like, it was very neck and neck. So to get – like, I remember Nuggets people were up in arms, like, so excited to get him. They had no idea he was going to get there. He had never even been in the state of Colorado, let alone work out for the Nuggets. Um, So that's a fun little fact. But the the other factor is, like, they got Nicole Jokic wherever they got him in the second round. As much as that that skill – there is some luck involved, and there's luck involved in the entire draft process. I think what makes tank, what makes tanking a strategy that that is you know repeated and seen year after year, like we're seeing OKC right now, we're seeing Detroit right now, Houston right now, Orlando trades Aaron Gordon to Denver, trades Nikola Vucevic, trades uh, Evan Fournier to tank. Um, it, it's an exact science regardless. So this, the analytics over the years proved that. Um, you know, there, there are just higher chances of, of netting that type of all-star, that type of game-changing talent in the top five of the draft. There's There just is, right, based on win shares, based off of all-star appearances. Whatever metric you point out, all these, you know, the data always suggests that those type of players are available, in, even in the top ten, let alone in the top five. But the five is where you want to be. And those type of players, when you have two of them, that's most traditionally when teams win championships. So if you're a small market team like Denver – you know, it does make sense to do that. Like, it's just based off, like, you you, you can't, they tank to get Carmelo Anthony like they did. So, you know, the Nuggets rebuilt from that era with a big, with a big star player like Carmelo to get that whole package back that turned into a three seed. But most teams, you know, the Philly didn't have that opportunity. They traded Drew Holiday for Nerlens Noel and a first and a future first round pick because they needed to get more assets. Like they didn't have their big piece was trading for Andrew Bynum that year before, and it flopped in their face. He didn't play for a game. But the reason why I also wrote the book is that like, there's not one way to do it. So it, it really is like an anecdotal history of all these different case studies. We follow Philly and their really, really brazen effort. We follow Boston moving on from the title team, right? Like they moved on from KG and Paul Pierce before they had to, because they knew what was going to happen with those guys. That's not what the Lakers did. Right. They kept Kobe. They kept thinking they were going to build a title, um, another title contender around him. He was old. He was hurt. Steve Nash, they trade for him. He's old. He's hurt. They lose Dwight Howard to Houston. And inadvertently, the Lakers become the, one of the worst teams in the league, getting, you know, top picks. Like, they took Russell in 2015 and Ingram in 2016 and Alonzo Ball in 2017. Um, and they, you know, take took Steve Nash from Phoenix. Phoenix was also supposed to tank, but that was that team, you know, with Goran Dragic and Isaiah Thomas and those you know those guys that were famously falling short so there's no right way to do it there's no there's no like direct way to do it because there's unforeseen circumstances that are bad good just like you know taking Amanda Moody at seven and falling into Nicole Jokic at 41 so that's kind of like another you know spiel and uh I guess, like selling pitch for what it is. Like it's, I I bring you into all these different teams and kind of cover the league from the opposite perspective, not competing for the title, but competing to be competing for that title in the future.
2: Right. It's such an interesting way to think back through different teams' histories and what they've been through. I think as Nuggets fans often we're like, how are the Lakers always good? But we forget some of those Small stints in there that they might have had where they really did struggle. It kind of seems like teams like Utah, the Nuggets, those small market teams. I mean, Denver is such a weird situation because it's a huge city. You have all five major sports and you got – like even the non-major sports. You got lacrosse, uh-huh. you got, you know, all kinds of stuff here.
3: I love Denver. I've been there a bunch. Great city. <laughs> and then
2: there's not, it's still somehow like a small market when it comes to the NBA. How much of the, you know, market size plays into it? Because it's annoying to those of us yeah. who are in a Denver situation or a Utah situation to watch teams like LA and the Sixers who are always in the conversation or the Celtics who are always in the conversation. Yeah do things like tanking? And why do you think that some teams are doing it more than others?
3: Yeah. I mean, the Lakers are a perfect example. That's why they're in the book. Like I had an executive tell me the Lakers were the most poorly managed team from 2012 to 2016. And they just fell back ass backwards into LeBron and then they got Anthony Davis. That's just how it works. Like they were by far the most poorly managed organization. And I mean, not by far, but that's what, that's what a lot of executives think. So, it doesn't really matter for them. They can take three to four years and fumble and, and, and inadvertently collect all these lottery-type talents, and then just trade them for Anthony Davis and win the title the very first year. That's why these other teams, you know, have to play the lottery game intentionally because they don't have that luck. They don't have that margin for error where you're going your market and your city and its landscape and its environment is just going to draw some guy eventually. Like, that's what was a big rift in the Lakers organization from, you know, the, the Phil Jackson era till the end of Kobe's retirement. There was a huge segment of that franchise who just said, we're going to keep getting a star. Like, we're going to. We're L.A. We are going to. Jim Buss and Mitch Kupchak just wanted to get back to the table with LeBron in 2014, with Carmelo in 2014, with the Marcus Aldridge in 2015. And I think it—they it, didn't realize until they didn't get a meeting with Kevin Durant that they weren't like in the mix, like they needed to actually have a change of heart and like try to do this more organically. But like, sure enough, then they just got LeBron, and then they trade those pieces and get Anthony Davis, and here they're back. So for a team like you know, Orlando, that's a perfect example of how perilous it is because they get down to they trade Dwight Howard to LA, they get these pieces back. You know, you look at the guys that they've had on the roster in that time period. A lot of them are pretty good. Luchavich was a two-time All-Star. Aaron Gordon is Aaron Gordon. You know, he never really found himself there, but he's a fucking talent. Mm-hmm. Victor Oladipo became an All-NBA player. Mm-hmm. Um, Evan Fourier he, he, he scores 20 points a game. And Aaron Aflala, who, you know, Denver people know, was a really solid scorer for a long, long time. And they just never got it going down there. And they had to rebuild from that rebuild. And the only way to do that is to trade all your guys and – Hope and hope and pray you're going to win some lottery luck because they're Orlando. Like that's that's just what it is. Like this is not the day of Tracy McGrady potentially pulling Tim Duncan there. Like and the only reason they got Tracy McGrady was because he was like, you know, disgruntled in Toronto and they just got lucky. Like a lot of it just comes down to random circumstances. And if you don't have that guy, you know, you, you're not getting the other guy. And if 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 it all comes down to random circumstances, I would take my luck that those random circumstances are lottery balls. And I have a little bit of say in that. And if I'm the worst record, you know, I have a certain, you know, percentage and that's why they ended up um, changing to the current lottery format that we have in 20, which in 2017 got passed. It was the first year I'm in mean, 2019, the Zion draft, but you know, a lot of executives told me that without Hinky's process years, without all those other teams, Orlando, um, Boston, you know, Cleveland was really poor for a while. Milwaukee was, um, very, very poor um, when they ended up having a bunch of injuries that year in 2014, like they were the worst team in the league um, when they fell to the two and got Jabari Parker. Like that was when the league decided we need to make it less easy for that worst team. And, and they changed the rule to have a fourth drawing and have those bottom three teams all at an even 14%. Gotcha.
2: I mean, it makes sense uh, the way that you talk about it. It does make sense to, two play your odds in the lottery because you know, you're going to get a, um, a future pick and you kind of said it earlier about Boston and them deciding to move on from uh, their big three, maybe a little bit early because they knew what was coming. So just from, from all the different conversations you had and stuff, I know you said there's not one right way to do it, but is there, yeah. when does a team know that it's time to move on from, from some guys? And is there anyone who's doing it right?
3: Yeah, I think it's just a feel thing also combined with numbers. Like, before uh, – not to toot my own horn, but, like, well before the Kyle Lowry trade discussion started popping up, I wrote about it at Bleacher Report in, like, early February um, just because you would hear it talking to people around the organization. Like, they were struggling. This is before they became where they are. Like, they were still in the mix, like, around 500 – no, no, this is they, – they had that bad start and they stormed back, whatever – but they weren't, like, out of the playoff picture type situation like they are right now. They were still, you know, trying to figure it out. Right. And the, just the vibe talking to people around the around the team was, like, maybe it's time to trade Kyle Lowry. Like, he just can't get us to a certain level anymore. He's still really, really good. But he's not pushing us to – being in the playoffs at like even he's not pushing us to having like there are certain players right where you know that that team is going to probably be in the mix for home court advantage like that's just what it is Denver's got one of them right so maybe two of them but definitely one so um maybe three of them the way Michael Porter Jr. is playing um so you know it's just there's there's a matter of getting those guys and um you know Kyle just couldn't be one of those guys right now and they don't have that guy on their roster anymore mm-hmm. so the best way to get that guy right to, if you're not toronto is to build towards the draft i'm not saying toronto was going to considered to do all that but he's their best trade piece mm-hmm. if he's not if he's not getting you to the title contending and he's your best trade piece then he's probably more valuable to you as a trade piece than a player on your roster i think that's what that ends up – I mean, I think that extrapolates out to every other situation. Like KG and Paul Pierce, they had won a championship. They brought them back to the finals in 2010. But, you know, that season 2013, the playoffs, um, they just flamed out. Like Rajon Rondo tore his AZL. And they were old and battered, and people just knew. Like at the end of the locker room – I remember talking – it's not really covered in the book this info too much, um, but talking to a lot of players on that 12-13 Celtics team in that locker room at the end of uh, – their loss to Brooklyn in that first round, like they were just beat up and sad and old and down. Like Doc Rivers knew it was over. They knew the rebuild was coming. Like they could feel it. It's palpable in in those circumstances.
2: Yeah, and I guess the difference between them and Denver and their current situation where Jamal Murray goes down with the torn ACL, is Jamal still young, you know, you're hoping he comes back and is able to battle back. But I know there were a lot of talks of Denver should just give up when Jamal went down, then Will Barton goes down, Monte Morris goes down, and they still feel like they have a good fight with uh, Nicole Eosch and Michael Porter Jr., They get Aaron Gordon. And while he's not really, his box scores don't necessarily demonstrate how much he's bringing to the table. They haven't lost a lot since the Aaron Gordon trade. Yeah. yeah. I think it's like 17 and two or something. They are.
3: Yeah. I I think for him, he's one of those guys right now. he's, He's in a role where you just, when you watch, you see how he just helps shift things smoothly. Like, the way he just pops out to the wing and it does a little DHO and then comes off that and screens for somebody else. Like he's just like moving around and like doing things. And I think he's, I think he's taken more pride defensively.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, and I think he's realized he's not like a point forward anymore. Like he's, he needs to be more of a creator through other things. And um, he can't, like you can be a really good creator by setting good screens and cutting hard and, and, you know, just being part of an offense. So um that's been impressive.
2: Yeah. It reminds me a lot of kind of that Mavericks team that was just Dirk and a bunch of guys who played defense around him. That's what this new version of the Nuggets looks like. And I'm sure Michael Malone is loving it because he's a defensive minded coach to his core, according Mm -hmm. to him, self-proclaimed. Some people think maybe he's not.
3: (laughs) No, I mean, this is a great segue. I mean, a a big portion of my book covers the Sacramento Kings, which it starts off when Vivek Ranadide bought the team and hired Michael Malone because the Kings are another example, like in this type of situation, they're always in the lottery, right? They're not trying to be the Kings. Very rarely since they their last playoff appearance in 2006, very rarely have the Kings set out organization. Like our goal this year is to get a high lottery pick. That's not been the case, but through, you know, infighting with ownership and management and coaching staffs, And players, like, they haven't really got a chance to be on a uniform direction. And they thought that was going to happen when they hired Mike Malone. And I know from talking to people from Malone to other people on his staff to other people in that front office at the time, they had a two-year window. They were allowed to just come in, you know, build around DeMarcus Cousins, institute their culture, and then make the playoffs. But – and and their goal and they 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 wanted to be a defensive minded team absolutely that's what they kept talking about and that was the word I kept hearing like we want to be top ten in defense right away like, that is our goal that's not something that you have to have the talent for like look at the Knicks this season like you have to just coach it and believe in it and work on it and do it so that was always their goal but Demarcus Cousins you know wanted to score and play fast. Vivek wanted to score and play fast. He came from Golden State. He was obsessed, obsessed, and probably still is, with having a high offensive rating and worrying around the floor and shooting threes, which Malone was down for. Like, he really wanted to have DeMarcus shooting threes, and then he really got credit for spacing that out. But they brought in Pete D'Alessandro after they brought in Mike Malone, another former Denver guy, uh, Pete D'Alessandro. And they just – with Vivek mixing signals and you know they'd end up trading for Rudy Gay that year um, which was obviously a win towards the playoffs like there was the coaching staff that wanted to build defensive principles the player and the ownership group wanting to run fast and play offense and just score and the GM having to exact what the owner wants to do because the owner is his boss and that's just the type of stuff that leads a team to being bad over and over and over again, and not bad enough, where they're picking seven and eight and nine and ten, where you're not getting a guy. If not every team gets lucky where Jamal Murray falls to them at seven. You know, like we're not. We might not be talking about Denver. Obviously, he's hurt, and they're still doing what they're doing. But we might not be talking about Denver in this same circumstance if New Orleans takes Buddy Hield at six, and and, and uh, or Jamal Murray at six, and Buddy Hield and. In- but he was a great player but is he jamal murray no so it it just goes to show that um a lot of it does come down to luck but you also can make your luck worse by doing stuff like the kings did and mike malone obviously didn't survive that situation the only reason he's in denver is because they fired him for not doing the things that they told him in the beginning he didn't have to do so it's just Crazy stuff behind the scenes in the NBA. Very little of it actually has to do with the basketball. A lot of it just comes down to conversations in the locker room and in board meetings and on team planes and stuff like that. And a lot of it is covered in Bill to Lose.
2: <laughs> Interesting. I'm wondering if, like, um, in your conversations with uh, executives, players that you talk to, because you're kind of saying a lot of it has to do with not so much of the basketball do they have intangibles like was there one intangible that they were looking for that because part of it is drafting the right guy right the kings end up getting it uh, getting a great draft pick in what 2018 they get the second pick
3: very much considering taking michael porter jr i know that on really yes i reported that back then i i think i wrote it in that story you're talking about at si Mm -hmm. um that he, he took some personality tests that that showed them that he was like a killer, like that type of They like that was like a good, that was like the asset that they were, or like the, the personality portfolio they were looking for, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they also really liked um, Luca Doncic but for whatever reason, they went with Marvin Bagley, you know? And that's just, this, and now his, his representation was lobbying for him to be traded this year, and they were trying to trade him too. So you're right when you, when you, when you get up to that plate and you swing and miss, it could also really do damage too. And that's where, you know, the draft, that's why th- the draft is such a central component of the book. Like I really, you know, most from it starts in 2013, like the book opens at New Orleans Noel's draft table in Barclays center. John Calipari is losing his mind as New Orleans is falling from one to two to three. He's badgering. Every time he falls, his agent, Andy Miller, Andy, like, where is he going? Like I'm like, you, you see that scene. And, you know, from there, you know, we pivot into front offices and it kind of happens every draft, like 2013, 14, 15. Um, the book kind of ends in the, in the spring of 16. Um, like I bring you into the war room and, and ha- the conversations they're having and, um, and, and, and give you, you know, flashback to the pre-drive workouts that are, that are influencing these decisions. But like the reason why I, th- I find all that so compelling is like, if you take Marvin Bagley, you're going to get fired. And that's why I think the draft is such a, a central like pull of the league that, you know, there's a big orbit around because there's so much resources invested into it. Like people and people and people of staffing overseas in college pro. And then you meet for months and bring in, you know, 60 guys into your facility, interview them, give them medical testing and all this stuff. And, you know, you, you, call their middle school coach and their high school guidance counselor and do all this research. Because if you, if you miss, you're going to lose your job. And if you win, if, if you hit, you're going to be Tim Connolly building a contender year after year, who probably has some of the highest job security in the league. So I think I'm just so, I'm just so fascinated by how impactful and how powerful those decisions are.
2: Yeah. Yeah, so is there anything in like one intangible that you felt like everybody seemed to find important? Because in Denver, mm-hmm. they always look for the, the guy who's willing to yeah. play a role, who's not really not, they don't like the big ego. Yeah. they like the hardworking Mason Plumlee's, uh, Facundo Composites yeah. of the world. And it drives me nuts, because yeah. you're right, you do need a Michael Porter Jr. You need a, one of the first things I learned, I think from Adam Mares, who I think introduced us actually, yeah. Um, a Nuggets game was that um, that you need that Jamal Murray needed to be this cocky kind of personality on the court because there was nobody else who was doing that for Denver at that
3: yeah. time. I mean, everyone wants, and it's 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 cliche and corny, right? Like everyone wants hardworking guys, humble guys, guys who like have to fight for their their meal and have to like you know they're 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 gonna kill the guy in front of them that type of you know BS. Now I remember talking to people in Orlando when they picked Victor Oladipo number two, like they were going to take him number one um, if they got the number one pick. Um, and, and they just loved him for what he put on tape and um, the way he interviewed. But also they saw that his year over year, like analytical project increases in his statistical production and his increase in efficiency, they thought, and, like that was statistical evidence to to like back up all the stuff that Tom Crean was saying and, and the graduate assistants were saying and his teammates were saying about how hard a worker he is, right? Like you see that year over year improvement, like that's probably only going to get better when you're working full time as a basketball player at. An NBA franchise with you know a five-star first-class coaching staff and medical team that can just make you work on your body and your game at all times like yeah. that's probably only going to get better for a guy like that versus like Nerlens was fall as Nerlens was falling down that board like he's you know credit to Nerlens because he's had a hell of a career where he turned down that four-year seventy million dollar deal and he's kind of bounced around a little bit. As like a mercenary rim protector, but like he's someone that people value in the NBA. Like he's going to have a career much much longer than where we're at right now. He's got another probably seven years left at least, based off his reputation for what he's done. He's worked hard defensively, mm-hmm. but at the time, there was a lot of speculation about he didn't have a good he didn't have a good motor, and like he wasn't working out for teams, partially because of his agency. Like they held him out. They did not let him work out for anyone below number two. He only worked out for Cleveland. No, no, sorry. sorry, sorry. He didn't even meet with them. He had his ACL injury. He wasn't working out, but he only met with Cleveland and Orlando and the other teams didn't get his medical information. Like that's a way that, that that's a theme that pops up a lot in the book, like Christos Porzingis um, or, you know, Joel Embiid, like Joel Embiid only gave his medical representation or medical information to the first pick, Cleveland, the, sec- um, the second pick, Milwaukee, the third pick, Philly, and then he skipped Orlando and Utah from picking four and five, which goes right back to the small markets again. And then six and seven was Boston and L.A. when, when they took Smart and Julius Randall. They had Joel Embiid's medical info, So, like, Mike Zarin and Sam Hinkie have both told me at certain points. I didn't get to talk to Sam on the record for the book, um, but they both told me, like, in time, and I can say that confidently. Um I won't get in trouble that like um Zaren's quoted in the book um that you know they both thought that they could have traded down or that they could have traded to five and like still gotten and beat because of that. Like if he if he gets past those first two guys, Philly was considering trading down with Utah at five because they could have still gotten and beat because they knew no one in Orlando is risking just like Denver took a big gamble of Michael Porter jr. Right. It it was a 14. wasn't that high. Like imagine taking Michael Porter junior at three. Like if it works, you're a genius, but if it fails, you're an idiot. And so, especially in a, in a small market where these guys are everything to you, right? If you, if you take that guy and he fails and you didn't see his medical info, they're really getting fired. So that's how these agents get to play that. And so, um, I just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a cloud uh, atmosphere where everyone's trying to steer their thing. So teams are just trying to ask as many questions as they can to figure it out. But at the end of the day, like, they're all trying to do the corny stuff to bring this all back to your question. Like, they're all trying to find the hard workers and the guy who won't get a hundred million dollar deal and stop, you know, trying to, like, Chandler Parsons just got his deal. And he's like, I don't really care about basketball that much. I'm having a great life. Like, that's, that's what they're trying to suss out. Um, but it's hard because you have these agents and these other people trying to do what's best for their client or what they think is best for their client too.
2: Yeah. Interesting. I didn't realize that it was a choice who you could provide medical
3: information to. You can. Yeah. If you don't show up to the combine, which is what a lot of these guys do now, uh, it's, it's a big gripe amongst exactly my advice to my advice to any, uh, you know, aspiring reporter, if you ever get to talk, to a team person who's especially like involved in the draft, just complain to them about how the top guys don't have to go to the combine, and it would be so much easier if everyone got medical testing. Like that's the thing everyone's upset about. Um, but it, it has to be that has to be like collectively, collectively bargaining They'd be a whole thing. But it, it's a big chip that that agents get to play with, um, and it happens very quietly, too, a lot, um, because there's some borderline HIPAA type stuff, right? Like,
0: right.
3: when, um, you know, it's, it's tough to, I mean, I, I hear every year, you know, oh, this player's got a foot injury, this guy's got a bad hip, like, it's hard, like, they're not really allowed to say that. Um, so a lot of the stuff happens, and we never really hear about it publicly until, you know, four or five years later, when someone writes a book about it.
2: <laughs> right. Right, which is why you see guys like Michael Porter Jr. drop in the draft. And interesting how you said, like, MB gave it to the first two, chose not to give it to some, gave it to other people, because you can kind of manipulate yeah. at least to an extent who knows what information, if you were wanting to go to a specific team or not. Did you hear anything about Bull Bull? Just wondering.
3: You mean before the draft? Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean the mark on him was definitely the same stuff with New Orleans, but there's also like a different degree of you know he kind of came from money and kind of had you know a, a, a celebrity type lifestyle, if you will, as like a youth guy. Like he was the son of Bull Bull, while being pretty much identical to Bull Bull, and then like having a three point shot and a handle. Like that's a guy who's gonna be Instagram famous and whatever. And there was definitely a bit of a perception that, like, maybe he wasn't a basketball player and was a celebrity. And he was, like, basketball was his path to celebrity. Um, I think I think the Denver situation, from what I've heard, humbled him. Like, obviously, it sounded like uh, he wanted a different team this year in February or in March. Um, uh, he's still there. And um, I, I, I think he probably would have been in, in Orlando if – the magic executives weren't so keen on getting RJ Hampton from everything I was told. Um, I've definitely heard that Jeff Weltman, like wanted RJ Hampton. And I remember even before the draft, they were, there was talk that he could go to Orlando at 15. That was like his ceiling um, and he fell to where he did. Um, But I, there was definitely talk that when when the magic took Cole Anthony, that they were thinking of taking RJ Hampton. Um, So it wasn't, that wasn't surprising to me, but with bull bull, I mean, There was also some very – a lot of comparisons, and I made it a lot, too, to Christos Porzingis in the injury history sense, too. Like, he got hurt very easily at Oregon, and he had that thin frame. And, like, we see Porzingis, like, maybe these 7'3 spring bean guys, like, aren't that, you know, durable. Like, Kevin Durant even, too. Like, he has a lot of injury history as well. Maybe maybe seven foot guys who are that thin, like, aren't meant to be – Moving around all the time, flying into guys who look like Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic, you know. Right. So, because they do like as much as that that swerveness or feltness gives you the speed advantage around those guys, like it gives you a speed advantage in certain regards. But you're also way smaller than them and get beat up on in certain aspects too. So, I think that was a big concern with a lot of teams too because he'd already got hurt in Oregon and um, there was like i mean he's looking at him now like he hasn't developed much physically um there was a fear that he'd ever really be able to ha- to handle like a real 25 minute a game workload which we're seeing with Mick mobamba too in orlando his is more conditioning um uh, asthma related type stuff but he's also still kind of skin and bones and he gets pushed around and you know in new orleans jackson hayes that's the big thing there with that coaching staff like they love like the front office loves him, and he's got huge, huge potential with that athleticism, that size. But, like, he gets pushed around defensively, too. And, and if you can't – if you don't have the frame, that's – I mean, people – you see executives, like, talk about young kids, like, oh, he's got the shoulders to, like, put on mm-hmm. some muscle. But it's, like, real. It's important. Like, you got to be, you know, like – I'm trying to think of a Denver example of someone who came in skinny and put on muscle. But you see Giannis, and you yeah. see – yeah, MPJ definitely bulked up. I mean, look, even like someone like Lonzo. Like Lonzo in LA, it was a skinny little kid, and now he's he's become he's become an NBA player, you know. Yeah. So it's important. And I don't know if Bull Bull will ever get there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, he's he's definitely a celebrity. Like I know you hear Pepsi Center, excuse me, Ball Arena get <laughs> so silly cuz would spend the can forever. So I just don't even know why we pretend, but yeah. yeah, it gets really loud for Bol, Bol If he's not in the game by like halftime and they're up, there's chance for Bol, Bol. Yeah. even louder than the MVP chance for Nikola Jokic, which is crazy. So he definitely does have that little bit of like a, he's always been like important or you tweet about Bol, Bol and it'll go viral. Like even if it's nothing that important or whatever, because yeah. you do get crazy viral clips of him doing crazy weird things with his really long,
3: skinny frame. Have but I think about Bobo? No, I'm curious. I'm going to do a little search while you're talking. Okay.
2: Um, but I did hear, too, the same – similar information that you heard in regards to the Orlando situation. They really mm-hmm. wanted RJ Hampton. I was told night before that trade happened, it's 100% A 100%. It's
0: going to be – it's going to be him, too.
2: We got to make this happen. Obviously, at that time, you don't have Jamal Murray injured. So, you're thinking – i mean everyone was excited we have not been i think every year we're on a roller coaster here in denver but this year in particular with the injuries
3: has been no and that when that trade that trade came across my wire around wednesday night too and i i i, uh, I put that out there um and uh people were like no we're not No, no, it's not gonna happen we're not getting up gary harris and this for 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 aaron gordon i was like it's it seems happy because i think because they gave they put they drew that line in the sand and i think that's when word got like started to be like this is going to be denver because it's you're not going to give up rj hampton for for that um mm-hmm. and it was a perfect window too where um uh, it is a kind of a coincidence but the fact that his contract ends when mpjs does and it gives you that you know year and a half window to really evaluate it like it was just too perfect for the situation any fit almost perfectly too like when paul Millsap was paul Millsap in denver like this is a younger better like they, that's kind of been the denver thing right it's been the theme the jeremy grant but the jeremy grant was paul Millsap before jeremy grant yeah um, and aaron gordon just the, the, the latest iteration of that that small ball for um not even really small ball i mean aaron gordon's a big dude mm-hmm. um so it just seemed like the perfect perfect fit and i and I, they were they were pretty applauded around the league like no one was like oh what's Denver doing or like I don't really like that for Denver it was it was like oh shit Denver got Aaron Gordon yeah okay they were always in the mix for him god yeah
2: (laughs) well Paul Millsap is not ready to be the old Paul Millsap yet he has been putting up some crazy good numbers as of late so he must have noticed like oh this guy looks playing a lot like I used to play I gotta get back on this but I want to know like Jay like what was one of the craziest stories you heard because this description i'm reading about your book includes interviews with top players coaches and execs it (laughs) also has pre-draft workouts feuds between agents and executives really is surprising trade negotiations i mean this book has everything if you love the nba this book has really got a lot of inside kind of behind the scenes stuff in it so you got to tell us something
3: the book is very much for NBA Twitter. Like I want to see people taking pictures of things and a paragraphs and putting it out there. Um, but one one I will give you that people seem to love is, um, you know, in twenty fourteen, we talked about a bunch. Um, you know, Philly was very much considering Dante Exum at number three. And he was the Australian wonder kid. You know, no one really knew too much about him in terms of, like, comparing him to college players. Like, he played a little bit in, like, youth ball over there um, but and, like, FIBA stuff, but no one of real consequence. And no one with the same type of barometer that, like, the guys, like, were playing in college, like Wiggins and Embiid and Parker. So the Sixers were notorious for bringing in hundreds and hundreds of players every year like over like probably close to 200 which is like triple what most teams do most teams bring in like 60 70 players they're bringing in 150 to 200 they had a bunch of local college guys when I mean, they, they look at everyone every second round pick type guy and tim frazier was a guy who just got signed by somebody um i don't remember um was a guy they liked penn state kid four-year starter um he's been around the league now um so they 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 but, they, but they, put a, they put him on a list. They put a couple other guys on a list, and they gave it to Dante Exum's agent, Rob Palenka, at the time, and said, you know, pick a guy from this list. We want to see Dante play him one-on-one, which is unheard of in modern NBA, right? Like, all these number one prospects, they all go work against a chair, right? They're one-on-zero, whatever. But Philly wanted to see Dante Exum against somebody. So Rob Polinka picks Tim Frazier. And, you know, Dante, 6'6", long athlete, Top five pick, Tim Frazier, not going to get drafted. It was it should have been a blowout. And it was. But Tim Frazier kicked the shit out of Dante Exxon. There's all this pressure on Philly to take him because of that Brett Brown Australian connection. And they needed a point guard, right? They had just taken New Orleans that year before. Michael Carter Williams wasn't really like a true point. There was like a, a lot of push for Dante Exxon in Philly. But Tim Frazier came in, beat the shit out of Dante Exxon over and over again. It was like a high school senior beating up on the fresh, the star freshman at a varsity practice, you know. The freshman gets called up to practice and gets just destroyed. They got a Friday night lights. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, people told me, like, as they walked into the gym, they were like, yeah, we're not taking Dante Exum anymore. If, if it wasn't Tim Frazier, if it was, you know, a guy who wasn't as much of, like, a killer, someone like Tim who'd hang around the league for a decade like he has, you know, maybe Dante would looked awesome, and maybe Philly would have taken Dante Exum instead of Joel Embiid.
2: Right. I mean, it really is a lot of – Luck, but it looks like your guy Frazier is in Memphis now.
3: Yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll give you one more little story. Um, in 2013, the Atlanta Hawks had the number 17 and number 18 picks in the first round, and at the time they were, you know, spearheaded by Danny Ferry, the general manager who ended up having that whole Lil Deng incident and ended up losing that role. But before that, what? he was dead set on Giannis Antetokounmpo. He wanted the kid from Greece. And mm. they begged and pleaded for um, his agents to take him off the circuit. Like, they didn't want him playing at events, like, as early as, like, that February. They're like, this guy's going to be a top-five pick if you keep showing him out there. And um, so they're the only team to get him to work out. They, they brought him under cloak and dagger. They flew him into Atlanta. They didn't put him up in a hotel. He stayed at Dan Ferry's house. Oh, he has been with Dan Ferry's wife and his kids – and Dan Ferry sitting at his table, thinking he's got the future of you know Atlanta at his table with his children, and they bring him to the arena. Um, they turn the lights on. The kid Giannis is crying at the scene um, wow. because you know, he'd been from playing. His his family there they were you know panhandling and and uh, and, and selling like you know, bootleg sunglasses on the on the sidewalks, and he was he just found basketball in a park to get respite from all that crap, and now he's potentially gonna be playing in an arena like that.
0: Right. So Atlanta
3: was in, like they were in on Giannis. Like other teams, like the Rockets, definitely like watched some video on him. Philly sent some people out there, um, but actually, a Sixers executive, then Courtney Weedy, like got into a, like a screaming match with one of Giannis' people because they wanted that to like roll out the red carpet like Orlando did, and Philly was and this executive was like, "This is just like a you're like a Greek kid. Like I'm just here to evaluate a prospect like I do every year. Like you're not mm-hmm. anybody special." But that's how Atlanta was treating them, and he was going to Atlanta, and Atlanta was trying to trade up. They were trying to trade with anyone they could to get up high enough to take Giannis. Um, But they, but they did think they were going to have, they were going to have, there was a chance they would have him fall to seventeen. Wow. Loved him too, obviously, and the agents just never really called Milwaukee back after Milwaukee visited. So they were just like, all right, well, we're just going to stay quiet too, Mm
0: -hmm. and
3: they were at fifteen. And they were ready to take Giannis. They knew all about Atlanta. They were like, we're not even going to tell Atlanta we know about it. Like, we're just going to sit here with our mouth shut and hope Giannis falls to us. So the uh, Hawks call every single team from 10 on down. No one's biting. They can't trade with number 10 because that was the Minnesota Timberwolves. They'd already traded with that earlier in the night with some Trey Burke deal. Um, number 11 was Philly. They wanted to take MCW. Number 12 was OKC. They had traded that, they had gotten that pick um, from Houston and that James Harden trades so where they took Steven Adams. Number 13 was Dallas. And Dallas like, was available, they had the pick available, but they were trying to trim salary to get max cap space for that next summer to pursue Carmelo and LeBron James so they were they were not trying to make that selection they were trying to because then that gives you guaranteed money on your salary cap for four years right mm-hmm. so atlanta was only offering number 17 and number 18 for number 13 and they're like why are you taking this this is two good picks only a couple picks down from you yeah. and it was because adding two picks would have been the direct opposite of a shedding salary right so they trade with boston that's how boston gets kelly Olinick and instead of Atlanta trading for Dallas and getting Giannis at 13. Giannis goes to Milwaukee at 15. And as that happens, the Atlanta war room went dead silent. Some people were sitting there like, What are we even going to do? And our pick comes up. Like, we're just, we were all about Giannis. Like, so it just goes to show, like, you can be two picks away, one pick away, and your whole plan is thrown up in your face. It's kind of like what happens to you and everybody listening when you're doing your fantasy football draft <laughs> and you want, you know cam newton in the eighth round and someone takes him before you that happens when you're running a team for your job and then the whole fan base is going to yell at you for doing a bad job afterwards and you're going to get fired so that's the kind of stuff that um that, that i love covering in the book and there's more and more and more stories like that i mean i just rattled off to, to you kind of back to back and there's 300 pages of them so i talked to 300 people i really do think that virtually all of the book is new or like furthered information like i don't I wasn't like following Wikipedia pages and like going through a team schedule um, as I was piecing this together. Like I just put down on the page what people told me. Um, so there's a lot of new stuff that you're not going to find out if you don't buy the book and open the first page.
2: Well, I mean, you've given us some pretty amazing stories as is. So I really need to buy the book now. I don't even like reading Jake and I want to read your book. So is there going to be an yeah, audio yeah. version available in fact?
3: there is there is I'm not I'm not the voice no one wants to hear me talk for 320 pages but uh there is a guy I think his name's Kyle he seems like a nice dude um yeah he's he's the he's the audiobook
2: nice well that's good so that way all of us whether we like to read or not can enjoy these great stories that you (laughs) all this work into it's been a lot of hard work thank you for those of us who love the NBA like you know I do I could sit here all day and talk to you about it.
3: I'll say this. I have a lot of respect for the Nuggets. I have a lot of respect for the Nuggets. I'll okay. say that. I think what Tim Connelly and Calvin Booth have done there, I mean, down to, you know, scouting guys, Jim Clibbanoff and others. Uh, and I think the coaching staff is phenomenal down. I, I, I think it's a really fantastic organization. And I think the uh, the proof is in the pudding in those numbers. Um, yeah. So right down to, uh, to Vicky, Candy Lady Vicky. Um, yes. I think the whole organization is, uh, is doing a splendid job So I'll leave you with that and, the, and they're up there, they're in the top tier for sure
2: Yeah, well dude, thank you so much for coming on I love talking basketball you with you Yeah, you gotta come yeah. to Denver once everyone's vaccinated and everything I'm, It's safe
3: I'm very excited to do so And uh, hopefully to be seeing some late playoff games And uh, writing about the title contending Nuggets for a long time to come
2: yeah, fingers crossed for us. Just don't bring that Philly hat, if you don't mind. Just leave that <laughs>
3: at your apartment. I'll no, in good places, so that's that's probably non-negotiable. But I, I know the Eagles are playing in Denver this year, and I do have plans to go to that game. So I'll definitely be I'll be coming back for that. But, All right. Uh,
2: yeah. Well, we'll allow you into town for that, for that one event uh, as an Eagles fans. But, you know, it's the only exception for your hat, for sure. <laughs> I'm just kidding, man. Um, where can the people follow you and where can they buy your book
3: um, I'm, I'm on Twitter at Jake L. Fisher F-I-S-C-H-E-R on um, the book is Built to Lose How the NBA's Tanking Era Changed the League Forever um, you can buy it anywhere books are sold um, Barnes & Noble Amazon Bookshop.org if you want to support a local bookseller my publisher Triumph Books you just Google Built to Lose it's going to show up um, yeah publishes tomorrow May 4th so um, some people have already gotten some pre-orders come coming their way and the early reviews have been pretty good so I'm excited for the majority of people who have already put their order and more people to get their hands on it and uh, people like yourself and I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing people think I I, I think I think it'll be not bad that the reception will be okay so at, at a minimum so I'm excited for it.
2: Yeah I'm excited for it too. You'll have to tell me how how it does on the first day out on the shelves officially, but I'll be I'll try to order mine today so that I can get on the list. I don't want it to be back ordered. I need to know these. Stories. Yeah, you,
3: yeah, you need to know.
2: <laughs> All right, Jake. Well, thanks so much again. And
0: yeah, thanks for having me here.